Well, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. We're in Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 39. We're going to talk a little bit this morning about repentance that leads to celebration. Repentance that leads to celebration. And so let's stand as we read this passage, 27 to 29, or 39. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and often offer prayers, and so did the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. This is the word of the Lord. In... Uh, in Charles Dickens' The Tale of Two Cities. Anybody read that? There's a, there's a few people. Okay, it's a, it's a hard read. It's like, oh, it's a few hundred years old. And it was written at a time where, you know, every week there would be like a new chapter in the paper kind of thing. And guys like Dickens, back in those days, they were charged by, or they, they were paid by the word. So if you could write a very long description of, say, a bowl of oatmeal then they, you know, the publisher is just counting words and you get paid by the words. So these, these works are very long and sometimes hard to wrap your mind around. But there's this one, there's this one scene and, and, and it's about this bank. The bank uh, that, that's, that's one of the uh, um, scenes and one of the players in the whole story uh, is described as an old good bank. And it had dark windows and the doors creaked as you opened it, and the must of the smell, and the drawers as you pulled them out were so old and worn that wood shards would s s come up, and there would be bugs in your safety deposit box, and the only people you could meet as you walked into the bank were the oldest tellers possible. If they hired a new man, they would put him in a back closet somewhere until he was old. Only then could he serve the public. And these new fancy fangled banks with their windows and their doors and their cleanliness, well, that was just crazy. 
We're going to talk about the newness that Jesus brings. But Luke includes something very unique at the end of this chapter. The, the, end, the last verse is unique to Luke. You look at the other Gospels, they don't have it. You look at uh, um, the uh, apparatus in the Greek New Testament and a lot, of, uh, a lot of Greek manuscripts of Luke don't have this last verse because they were going, what does this mean? It's a hard saying, and it seems to conflict maybe a little bit with what Luke said, what Jesus said before, so it's, it's probably actually the right, the right thing. The hard saying is, is probably, you know, the scribes tended to take out stuff they didn't understand. So this hard saying at the end, no one after drinking old wine desires the new, for he says the old is good. How does that fit with what came before? We'll get to that. Remember Telson's Bank, though. This passage is about the calling of Levi and a feast that Levi then gave in honor of Jesus to show that he had changed and that he was willing to follow him. It says right in the beginning that Jesus went out and he saw the tax collector named Levi. And Luke here has, uses a very specific verb. Matthew and Luke use a very generic one that just means to see. But Luke here decides to change it and uses a very unique word that means he looked at with intent. He looked at him closely and with the intention of what comes next. Said to him, follow me. Jesus deliberately chooses Levi in this moment and simply says one word to him, follow. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Again, this, only Luke includes this in, 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 in his account of the calling of Levi. You can look at this in uh, Matthew and, and Mark. There's parallels there, the same story. But for Luke, this is a key phrase, and it goes all the way through his gospel. In fact, we're going to introduce a number of themes that we'll see over and over again, because to, to learn, you just need to hear the same thing over and over again, right? And Luke's going to do this over and over again. Leaving everything. This is Discipleship 101. We go back to Peter and James and John in chapter 5, verse 11, and they left everything and followed Jesus. And now we have Levi, a tax collector, leaving everything and rose and followed him. He gets up and he follows. And this is in a continual sense that the following isn't just something he decided in the moment, but something he continues to do. I. Howard Marshall in his commentary says, Luke's phrase here stresses Levi's decisive break with his old life, followed by his continued life of discipleship. Levi is all in. And we're not introduced to him at any other time in the story. He's just, he's just suddenly there, but Jesus sees him, Jesus calls him, and it changes his life. Levi made him a great feast. A great feast. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. And Luke's gospel, I love Luke's gospel because Luke's gospel is the gospel of potlucks. It really it is. You almost can't go a page without Jesus eating with somebody. He's constantly at table with 
different people. He's going to be at a Pharisee's house next. And then he's, you know, he's constantly asked this question that they ask here. Why does he keep eating with all the wrong people? <laughs> Jesus is eating constantly. Grant Osborne in his, in his commentary says this, to share a meal is to share a life. To share a meal is to share a life. And this more so in the ancient Near East than now. But you, you get that, right? You, you kind of get to know people maybe at a coffee shop, maybe at church on Sunday, maybe at the beach, but you really get to know them when you get together in your home or when you get invited into their home because there's pictures on the walls. There's things that are unique. We let down our guard a little more when it's in our homes where we're eating together. We're just sharing a meal. There's a deeper connection. Levi made him a great feast. And he shared his life with him. Now obviously when Levi left everything to follow Jesus, it doesn't say that he gave all of his money away because he made him this great feast. <laughs> right? He still had the funds. He has a different response with his riches. And though being a tax collector, and he would have been very, very unpopular with the rest of the disciples, and the Pharisees and scribes continually point this out, that he's numbered with sinners, especially wicked people. And because the tax collector is basically on the payroll of Rome and and Levi here, uh, it's not that he's a chief tax collector. He's different than Nicodemus, who we'll meet in chapter, I think it's 19, the tax collector or a chief tax collector. He'd be like a, a, a contract worker, and he would get a contract to, to uh, collect taxes on the road. So, you know, you'd come in from fishing or something, and there would be Levi saying, okay, how many fish did you catch? Well, I'll take a certain percentage of that. And uh, away you go. Uh, or just traveling on the road, you know, you'd run into a toll booth. And they could set up anywhere. But they were contracted to pay a certain amount to the person above them. So they could charge whatever they wanted. So just, just imagine that, you know. So you, 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 go, you go to the CRA or whatever, and, you know, there's a formula. But imagine if the person that you went to or... You know, maybe the software you used said, you know, actually you owe a lot more than just what this calculation says you should pay the government. It's actually 10 times as much or whatever. You'd, you'd be annoyed at it, right? You, but you know that that's the racket that they're into. You know, the tax collector is making a lot of money by upping how much he's going to charge you before he even pays off what he's contracted to raise. He's contracted to raise a certain amount of money. But he can make as much as he wants. So this is why tax collectors and sinners are often paralleled. <laughs> and we could make modern parallels, but we won't. Uh. <clears throat> Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples. This Greek word here is used very often in Exodus 15 to 16 and Numbers 14 to 17, rebellion against 
what God is doing. They're grumbling. Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, they group them all together, right? Because it's easier to cast your anger, your frustration at a group. It's harder to do it to a person. They don't use names ever. (laughs) It's those people. It's that group. Those tax collectors and sinners. See, they see a problem. But Jesus sees a person. Jesus gazed intently at a man named Levi. A tax collector named Levi. He has a name. He's not just a tax collector. He's a person. So Jesus answers them, it's Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Notice that Jesus does not disagree with their diagnosis. He doesn't say, yeah, you're right. A bunch of messed up people I'm hanging out with. He doesn't disagree with that. He says, yes, these are broken, sick people. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And if we kind of think about this, and uh, most commentators will say this too, is that the sense of this phrase here is that it's not those who think they are righteous, who think they have nothing to repent of, who think that there, there is nothing in their lives that stands between them and God. Those people I've not come to call. I've come to call sinners to repentance. And Luke adds... When you look in Matthew and Mark, the, the, the phrases, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Luke adds the phrase to repentance. Again, unique to Luke here. What is repentance? This is a good, one of those good Christianese terms that, you know, you don't use this in everyday speech, right? We don't talk about repentance. It's rarely used in everyday conversation. So what is it? What does it mean? And what does it accomplish and how do we practice repentance? To repent includes an awareness that a sinner has an unhealthy relationship with God that needs the medical attention of the great physician, says Daryl Bach. Repentance involves recognizing that a person is spiritually sick and impotent, unable to help oneself. Repentance is turning to Jesus for spiritual healing, for treatment of one's heart, and life, for one knows that only Jesus can give the cure. Repentance is coming to Jesus and saying, I can't do this on my own. There is nothing that I can do, nothing I can bring. There's no offering I can make that will make me right with God. It is only Jesus. See, repentance... You know, we can, we can often think that that just means a change of mind, but, but it's really a change of everything. It's a change of direction. It's a change of focus. It's, it's a turning away from something, yes. To repent of sin is to turn away from sin, but it's to turn to Jesus. It's to turn in a different direction, to, to reorient one's life around Jesus and his mission. 
And this is a massive cause for celebration. This is why Levi is throwing a party. He has left everything in this moment to, to follow Jesus. And this turning to Jesus fills him with such joy, he invites all his friends and says, let's have a big party because I've decided I'm going to follow Jesus. And it's this great joyful moment. And shouldn't it be? <laughs> Should be the greatest celebration. This will come up over and over. We're, we're going to get to Luke 15 and maybe six or eight months. <laughs> and you know, when, when, when the coin is lost and it's found, you call, you call everybody and you have a celebration. And when the lost sheep is found and brought home, the, you, you call your friends and you have a celebration. And when the lost son is, comes home, you kill the fattened calf and you throw a massive celebration, except for the older brother. And what does he represent? Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? We'll see this cycle back over and over again. There's always people who want to be party poopers. <clears throat> You're not doing it right. Repentance. Jesus just said, I've called to come sinners to repentance. Well, then the next question is, and, you know, get rid of the paragraph division, and, the, you know, most of our Bibles will have a separate section here. And actually, Matthew and Luke, this is treated as a separate scene, but Luke brings them together here. Verse 33, and, he said, and they said to him, this is in response to what Jesus just said, I've come to call sinners to repentance. Well, then why don't you guys fast and pray like we do and John's disciples do? Because in their world, that's how you respond in repentance. Repentance means fasting and weeping and sackcloth and ashes and praying to God at least twice a week. The Pharisees had a practice of Tuesday, uh, Monday and Thursday. Mondays and Thursdays, they fasted and prayed. And often it was for the nation. Fast and pray for, for our nation to turn around and for things to be different and for God to come and judge his enemies and, and restore us back to what we were supposed to be. This is a call to repentance. John, John said, I've, I've come to call people to repentance. It was a baptism for repentance. That was John the Baptist's mission. And his disciples fast and pray. We fast and pray in, in, in recognition of our sinfulness. So why, why, Jesus, why don't you guys do this too? It's actually a legitimate question. <laughs> it's a good question because they're like, Everything we've ever believed and everything we've ever taught has been that when we, when we realize that we're sinful people, we need, to, we need to repent, and that means to feel really sorry for our sins and to, and to pray, and, and that's right. But Jesus says something different here. Something different is going on with Jesus. There's a celebration. There's great joy. Why don't you fast and offer prayers as John's disciples and, and we do. But yours eat and drink. And again, this will come back over and over again. <laughs> Why do you eat and drink with these people? That's kind of the thing that ties these two scenes together. So Jesus responds to them. Well, can you make a wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them in the middle of a wedding celebration? You just say, whoa, hold it. Like, let's just put all the food back in the kitchen. And let's just not eat today. 
Or maybe for the whole week, because normally a wedding celebration in those days went for a whole week. Imagine the cost of that. I got three girls. I'm not imagining the cost of that. (laughs) A whole week of celebration. Jesus says, we're, we're, we're in the midst of a party right now. Things are changing. A a, a new way of coming to me is right in front of you. The bridegroom is here. And in the Old Testament, this imagery of bridegroom is never used of the Messiah. It's only used of God himself. That he is the bridegroom and Israel is the bride and a new people is being formed around Jesus' life and ministry. And this is a cause for celebration, but there's going to come a time when he will be taken away and then they're going to fast in those days. And this is, this is seen more as a, an, an allusion to the fact that Jesus already knows he's going to die. He's going to be taken away from them. And from Good Friday to Easter Sunday, they're going to fast and weep and it will be a hard time for them. But he will come back. And maybe today we need that same that same expectation, that same hope that the bridegroom is going to come again as as Abe pointed out this morning. And we're to be ready for that day. But when we experience the amazing grace of God, it is cause for celebration. Because God did a new and wonderful thing in and through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And this is what the parables mean. Seven times the word new happens in this passage. And there's three kind of illustrations that Luke enumerates for us from Jesus' lips here. Each one of them starting with no one. No one tears a piece from a new garment. No one puts new wine in an old wineskin. And no one after drinking the old desires the new. Account the seven times there is a new garment. Let's look at each of these. No one tears a piece of new garment and puts it on an old garment. Okay, so I've got some jeans in my closet that have rips and holes in them because, especially this, the, the left knee, because when I'm doing any work or stuff like that, it's down on the left knee, right? So that one wears out first. And Gary's like, yeah, left knee first. <laughs> now, if I buy a new pair of jeans and I go, well, I'm just going to, I'm going to the store to buy a new pair of jeans, and I'm just going to take it home and get the scissors out and start hacking up this new pair of jeans so I can patch that left knee. What? Why don't you just wear the new jeans? Like, get rid of the other ones or cut them off. It's summertime, right? You don't, you don't do that. That's not how you shop for clothes. Just to, I'm going to go buy new clothes so I can fix up the old ones. Well, that doesn't work. Notice that Luke doesn't include the, you know, when the, the, the shrinking and the tearing of the old. He doesn't include that here. His focus is, if this is the approach, you're going to destroy the new thing. You're destroying the new thing. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new. And the new will not match the old. What Jesus is saying here is that I have come to introduce a new way of relating to God. This is all new. I understand this is new, but it cannot fit in with the old way. You talked about fasting and praying as the sign of repentance. 
The better sign is the celebration. The better sign is the banquet, the great feast of renewed relationship with God. This won't fit into your old way of doing things. It won't match. The new way of Jesus will not match the old way of Pharisaic Judaism or the practices of John the Baptist's disciples. It's just not going to fit. Second illustration, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Now, new wine, when it's fermenting, expands. And so an old wineskin, which would just be a, a goat's, uh, goat or sheep uh, hide, uh, they usually they use the neck as the inspout. But it would, uh, a new wineskin would stretch and expand, but then it would start to harden because skin hardens after a while. You can only use it once. And he says, you don't put new wine to, to old wineskins. If he does, again, the new wine will burst the skins and be spilled, and the skin will be destroyed. Again, the new and the old are not compatible. They won't go together. They'll both be destroyed if you try to combine them. And this is what the, the book of Hebrews talks about over and over again, too. That the new way through Jesus Christ is so radically different, it just will not, it's not compatible with the old way of approaching God. There is a new way, the new way of celebration, the new way of Jesus calling people to himself, of sinners being called to repentance, of the sick being healed. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Over and over again, Luke is giving us the evidence that this is what Jesus' ministry is all about. And then the last, the last sentence here is interesting. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires the new, for he says the old is good. Well, how does that fit? This is an ir irony. It's like an ironic statement. It's a reversal. It's saying the Pharisees also needed to leave everything of their old life like Levi and embrace the new reality that Jesus was bringing, but they prefer their tradition and their power and their biases, and they weren't going to change because the old's good enough. That's what this, this is saying in context. The people, the Pharisees and religious leaders that don't like change will reject the new work of God, and this is what Hebrews gets at over and over. Don't go back to the old ways. Paul combats this in various letters. Philippians 3, Galatians 5, over and over he's having to say, don't go back, don't give yourself back into slavery into those old laws because the new law of Christ, the law of love, will set you free from the law of sin and death. There's a new way to live and it's about celebrating the new life and the healing that Jesus brings as we come to him, as we respond to his call to follow him, to leave everything so that we can be healed of our sin sickness. 
and so that our sin can be forgiven and we can walk in a new relationship with God. And that calls us to take off the old self with its old habits and practices and put on the righteousness of Christ. A new garment, not to cover the old garment, but to take off that old garment and put on the new righteousness of Christ. To put off the deeds of the sinful nature and to embrace the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus calls us, follow me. How do we respond? Do we joyfully embrace the new life that he offers us? Or do we grumble with questions? Do we come in repentance of totally leaving the old and focusing on the new that Jesus has for us? This is Luke's theme that he will come back to over and over and over again. It is reorienting our lives around who Jesus is. It is not staying in the old Telson's bank that won't change anything, that will continue to be old and musty and dark. It is a call to come into the light of Christ and find the newness of life that he offers us. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Grant Osborne, in his commentary, says this, and I'll close with this. The primary message here is the breadth of the church's mission. As Jesus and his followers try to befriend and bring all kinds of sinners back to God, the point of it is not fellowship, but salvation. And the message for us is that no one is excluded. Even those who have chosen a lifestyle that is despicable to us, for God so loved the world, not just those who fit into our comfort zone. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you that you reach out to people like Levi who would be written off as contenders for disciple or even apostle or even vaguely righteous and upright That in their culture and, again, and according to the religious norms of the day, according to their understanding of how you work, they would not be welcome at your table. And yet you called a Levi. And you ate with him and you celebrated with him. And so, Lord, as we look around at the world around us, as we look at our own lives, help us to just enter the joy of the celebration that when the lost are found, there is a party in heaven. Or there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous who don't need to repent. Lord, help us just to marvel at the joy that it brings you when people walk in repentance and turn to you for life. And so, Lord, fill us with the joy and the celebration that coming to you brings. May we not grumble or complain when you start calling people to yourself and including them in the church who we don't think belong or who don't fit. Lord, give us a wider vision. Give us the vision of your heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his son, 
that whoever believes shall not perish but have eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they know you, Father, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, who for the joy set before him did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but took up the nature of a servant and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, may we embrace the celebration that that brings when we choose to follow you now. Turn our hearts to you, that we may be healed, that we may run the race that you have marked out for us. Because Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Therefore, run with perseverance the race marked out for you. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. May we embrace the new things that you are doing, even in our day and in our time. Because you are good, and your love endures forever. And you desperately want people to come to you. In Jesus' name. Amen.